Pray with me. Father, we ask that you do show us your glory, for you are glorious, for you are good, for you are the source of all things. And so prepare our hearts to go to that fountain, that source. We thank you that you are able and willing to give us all things. And we ask that you do that now. Through preaching of your words, show us your glory. Father, I, I confess that I don't always go to you as I should. That often it takes trials and sufferings to go to that source. But I pray that you instill in my heart and the hearts that are here that we regularly go to your source in good and bad in the times where flowers are like Eden and times of our lowest times. So that whatever we do, our eyes are focused on you, our faith is strengthened, and we know where our source for that all that is good is. So be with us this morning as we dive into James, help us to count it all joy when we suffer trials and give us the wisdom to deal with the trials in the way you would have us. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. So often, when preparing a sermon, a preacher at times considers that the hearers of the sermon sometimes happen to be both believers and non-believers. Now, I think Sunday church is primarily a gathering for the God's people, for believers. As they gather the worship through song, reading of his word, etc. We can still nonetheless risk the, the danger of focusing on one group or the other. We can focus too heavily on speaking to those that are non-believers or too heavily on the other direction. So if you'll give me, forgive me for a second, I, I'm going to make this mistake, and I'm going to speak to those only who are in Christ for a minute. Now, of course, if you're a non-Christian, I invite you to go ahead and keep listening. You don't need to tune out. But I want to ask you, Christian, this question. Do you lack anything? Now, I don't mean do you lack something material. I'm not asking if you lack a bigger paycheck or a nicer house, a bigger car. I'm asking, do you like, do you lack a treasure that comes from God in heaven? Is there something that you lack from God? Do you remember, do you recall what Ephesians 1 says about our lack for those who are in Christ? Let's remind this. I'm going to have this passage on the screen to read along with it. Ephesians 1 tells us this, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should, not, should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we obtain an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise to, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it says, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So according to Paul here, what is it that we lack? According to Paul, it seems like we lack nothing. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, non-Christian, I hope you haven't stopped listening and you can come back in. Come back in and you might find this interesting because we just read a verse where Paul tells us that we lack nothing. But then God, through James, on the passage that we're going to focus today, tells us that, in fact, we do lack something. Contradiction. Well, Justin Lane, I guess I had a good run an elder. I made it, what, two weeks? Well, before we have an emergency removal meeting, let's see if we can work through this passage in, first, in James chapter 1. So let's go ahead and turn there and jump right into James and see what's going on here. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you see, right here, right off the bat, in James verse 5, he implicitly tells his readers that they lack wisdom. Now, who are James' readers? Recall last week, verse 1 that James is writing to what's called the diaspora, the dispersion, the, the Jewish Christians specifically. And so James is writing to Christians. More broadly, he's writing to Christians in general, like us here today. And so therefore, like, like Ephesians says, verse 5 of James is for those who are in Christ and have every spiritual blessing. But James starts off, you lack wisdom. We know wisdom is a spiritual blessing because throughout the Bible, 
we're given wisdom as a spiritual gift, such as Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So who's right? Paul or James? Well, you see, this is the wrong question. Non-Christian, unbeliever, if it helps, I invite you to play a game with us for the next several minutes. And the game is this. Listen to this sermon and read the words of James, assuming, presupposing, just for a few minutes, that these really are the words of God. And as such, they are not contradictory. They are life-giving, they are wise, and they teach real, deep, abiding truth. You see, Paul and James were not in contradiction. God, through Paul, teaches us that if we have been adopted into the family of God, we have all that we need. All that's truly important. Notice how Paul said that we in Christ have obtained, past tense, an inheritance. But then when we are given the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit is the one who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Because God is sovereign, all-powerful, and incapable of failing his purposes, our inheritance is sure, and we have it now, and we will obtain the fullness of it in the future. So Christian, do we have an inheritance in God? Yes. And we need it. And it's coming to us. So let's return to James. Let's look at our first of our four points in this passage today. James calls our attention to our need for wisdom. Again, in verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom. Recall the context of chapter 1. Chapter 1 deals with trials. Note verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then on the back end of our passage today, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What we have then in verses 5 through 11, our passage today, is like a parenthetical teaching. James is speaking on trials, and while making his first point that trials produce steadfastness, leading you to lacking nothing, James is reminded, oh, oh speaking of lack, trials, as you have probably noted, highlights how much you lack wisdom. So if you are in Christ, you have clearly been given wisdom. After all, what does it say the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> but like our inheritance, we have it, yet we are to acquire possession of it. We are to grow in it and seek it out. If you've ever laid in a hospital bed unsure if you will ever leave, then you know two things. How thankful you are that God has taught you his truths and how much you desire him to increase your wisdom so you can faithfully count it all joy. There's nothing like trials, suffering, to highlight our need for wisdom. So we know our need for wisdom. That James points out. Now James points to our second point is our source of wisdom. Notice how succinctly James 
just throws out in verse 5 where our wisdom comes from. He says, let him ask God. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Who is it we are to go to in order to receive wisdom? Is it our universities, our parents, our bosses? It is our generous God. He is there ready to give, and he is ready to give without even the slightest hint of eye-rolling or begrudging giving. He isn't bored of giving. He isn't tired of giving. He isn't giving out of mere obligation, secretly thinking, why won't Justin just get his life together? No, he gives out of his abundance, out of his exuberant joy, out of his love for his own. He gives generously without reproach. Notice the explicit part of this sentence is that God gives generously. And what the implicit, what's implicit in this verse is the source of wisdom. My feeling is that the reason James states it this way is because he assumes that his audience would already understand what is the source of wisdom. But I want to make sure that we're on somewhat the same page as James' initial readers. See, God is the source of true wisdom. As educated or intelligent as you can be, without God, you do not have wisdom. So James' initial readers, the dispersion, would have been very familiar with what we call the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with biblical teaching on wisdom. After all, an entire chunk of the Old Testament is referred to as wisdom literature. Now, we don't have time today to flesh out all that wisdom is, but I want to drive home what Scripture clearly says is our only true source of wisdom. So let's consider for a moment Job in chapter 28. Job in this chapter is going to plainly lay out where wisdom is to be found. He begins by asking, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. Pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the air, abandoned in death, say, we have heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows the place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens, and when he gave to the wind its weight, and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way of the lightning of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, like here or in Proverbs 9, 10, is an often used phrase in Scripture. It makes its 
It makes plain wisdom's source. So James in our passage today says, given our source, wisdom is yours to have. Just ask the one who has it, the one who is wisdom, to give it to you, and he will happily give it. So we have our need. We have our source. However, James then gives us a requirement. Notice uh, this is number three. Observe what is our requirement for wisdom. Notice verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and stable in all his ways. For this point, I want to focus on these three verses. And I want to focus on the word translated in your ESV and probably many other translations as the word doubt or doubting. In studying this passage, this word caught my attention because it's an interesting word and it's used in an interesting way. It's, it's a combo word. So in Greek, it's, these, it's two words that are kind of smashed together to make a whole new word or idea. So the first word in this combo is, is a preposition that means something like through, because of, or on account of. The second word is a verb that means to judge or to condemn or to decide. Also, this Greek verb for doubting, as it's translated, is in what's called the middle voice. Stay with me. I hope I haven't lost you. And we're all probably familiar with verbs having tense, like past, future, present, right? I played, I play, I will play. Most of us are also probably aware, familiar with the concept of person number, like I play, you play, we play. These, uh, here we see people doing the action and how many they are. But what is probably most foreign to us is the idea of a verb having something called voice. Voice is, pro- is the property of the verb that indicates how the subject is related to the action. So for instance, an active voice would be, I played. <laughs> I'm doing the action. A passive voice would be, I was played. The action is happening to me. But I said here that the word for doubting is in what's called the middle voice. And what is that? Well, the middle voice is probably the hardest thing to understand and define. It can be described as the middle voice being that the subject performs or experiences the action expressed by the verb in such a way that emphasizes the subject's participation. So this can have an impact on how the word is understood. So for instance, the Greek word for I give away, for instance, is in the active voice. It's, I am doing something, giving away. But when placed in the middle voice, it becomes, I sell. Right? So, notice this kind of self-interested slash reflective idea. At one point, I'm giving away in the active voice, but in the middle voice, I have a vested interest in it, so I'm not just giving it away, I'm getting something in return for it. (laughs) So, if I were to say, I hit, for instance, in the middle voice, then it might be understood as, I hit myself. So, most of our translations have translated this 
middle voice verb in verse 6 as doubt or doubting. Now, that's, a, that's a fine and that's a good translation. It's about as good as translators can do because if they were to you know, give a boring explanation like I just did or add more to the, to the verse, then they would cease being translators and risk being interpreters. But nonetheless, we, we maybe in English miss a little something here. And based on what I just attempted to explain about this Greek word here, doubting can potentially be misleading. See, James isn't teaching that there's this level of faith that once achieved, I can ask God for anything and he will be obligated to deliver it because we've, we've achieved this level 100 faith. But this is a faith that... Uh, He's not talking about quantity of faith, but he's talking about quality of faith. The faith here in this passage is a faith that isn't conflicted between trust in God and trust in something or someone else. See, this word has this idea of I'm interested in myself, I'm judging myself, and this is a a doubting procedure. I'm not quite sure about this God. So this is almost a preview, I think, of chapter 2, where James is going to talk more strongly about dead, fake faith. The Greek verb in the middle voice then refers to a kind of false faith where one is rather conflicted within himself and can't quite judge rightly if God is someone they can trust or put their hope in to receive God's promises. They don't really believe God will deliver what he promises. They can't make up their minds on this. Maybe they're in a church every Sunday. They go to the Bible studies. They go to Sunday schools. But they have not been brought to a place where they trust in God and no other. And this follows in the way James continues He says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He can't make up his mind to trust God and his promises or not. You see, James is denying a name and claimant religion. And instead, he's promoting a name and claimant religion. No, I didn't, I didn't read that wrong. <laughs> See, the false teaching of the modern name and claimant religion teaches, teaching says that you just need the right level of faith. And upon receiving that level of faith that I've achieved, you can now claim whatever you want from God, whatever happens to be your desire at the moment. See, there is a true biblical name and claimant way, but it's, it's not the false name and claimant religion. The true biblical name and claimant says that God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. So if you are His, then He will happily give to you the things of the Spirit out of His generosity and love. See, these things are already ours our inheritance, our adoption our changed heart, our wisdom. We wouldn't put our faith in Christ in the first place without wisdom. 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. And so, we can claim it. James says right here, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. So ask him and it will be given you. All God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. God promises you his wisdom and God does not renege or fail to deliver on all that he promises. Trust then in Christ. Do not be double-minded, but singularly trusting in God. Stop being tossed about by every little thing and give up all for the future blessings that only come in the Son of God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Ask, it will be given to you joyfully. So we see our need. We know our source. We heard our requirement for wisdom. Now forth, hear James' wise encouragement and warning for God's people. Bring your attention to verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorched heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So brother here shows that James is referring to a believer. And to describe the circumstances of this brother, he uses the word lowly, which points to someone being insignificant, of no account, or poor. James contrasts the lowly brother with the rich in verse 10. So it's best to understand that the person in verse 9 is one who is probably financially poor or in humble circumstances. This brother, then, is to boast in his exaltation. So in saving the lowly, God lifts them up and gives them a new dignity and worth. He gives them every spiritual blessing. So if you are lowly, but adopted into Christ, take heart, for this is the poorest you will ever be. You have innumerable riches waiting for you by Christ's side. But what of the rich in verse 10? The text here does not explicitly state that the rich is a brother. So some have insisted that he is perhaps unsaved. However, I think it would be more natural to assume that James just simply omits the brother in verse 10 and assumes that the brother in verse 9 carries on the verse 10. So this verse always also seems to be influenced by James' recollection of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, which says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God here in Jeremiah is speaking to his people, and it appears some of his people are wise, some are mighty, some are rich, yet they are still his people, both in God and the things of God. So again, James points to the wealthy believer in our passage, who is exhorted to boast in his humiliation. Again, recall our context of trials in the book of James. 
So the lowly position then describes the humble experience of suffering trials. These trials of suffering serve to exalt the poor and gives them a new sense of worth. It builds faith and increases wisdom. Likewise, it serves to humble the rich. Suffering shows that the rich shows the rich that instead of having a lasting lease on life on this earth, their lives are no more permanent than a flower of the grass, which the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. Suffering reveals how tentative and short life really is. Some of you remember uh, when I was in the hospital last July. And there's nothing like laying in a hospital bed that makes you consider the things of God. And I, I want to exhort you today that if you lack wisdom from God in, in how to go about trials, how to deal with suffering, you ask him now before the trial comes. It is the worst thing to be alone and scared and in pain and not know what to do and not have some sort of reason or direction in which to understand things. It's kind of like getting married before you've ever figured out what the heck marriage is. You're going to try to be a husband without learning to be a husband. Or being a carpenter without ever having picked up a, a hammer. And so we as Christians know and should not be surprised when tri fiery trials come our way. And so we ask for wisdom. Remember one of the turning points for me, both mentally was when I was lying in that bed and the thought hit me that no matter how bad it got in that room, no matter if I were to never leave that room, that this was the closest to hell I would ever be. God had prepared me with some modicum of wisdom. Yet, he was teaching me through it a greater amount of wisdom. And so, do we lack wisdom? Indeed we do. But yet, we have wisdom at our disposal because God will give it to us when we ask. God has given it to us and we are to grow in it. God is our wisdom. God is our source. Do not wait till the trials come to be wise to them. So we can say to God for him to be thou our wisdom and our true word. To be I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and thy, I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. God is our source of wisdom. He's the only place to find it. He's the only place to obtain it. Ask for it now. Let's do that. We thank you for today. We thank you for James and giving us 
practical things like the ability to ask you for wisdom, the recognition that you are the source, recognition that you have given us all spiritual blessings, yet we are to grow in them and attain them, seek them out. We should not be stagnant in our growth. We should not think that we've learned it all, that we've become completed. And I pray that unlike me, it doesn't take trials and suffering to teach, you, teach us things. That we have a desire to learn all from you is beforehand. So that when trials and suffering do come, it'll be that much easier because we are grounded in our faith in you. We are not double-minded. We latch to you and realize that you give purpose and goodness to the pain and suffering and evil we endure. So be our wisdom. Be our true word. And have us be with you. I pray these things in your son's name.